0: And Welcome to Deus Life, an aspirational podcast. I'm Patrick, and here with me as always is Hayden. And today we have an exciting guest, Jin Yu. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Thanks for having me. Yeah. Your energy this morning is already amazing. Like uh, uh, I, I spent the last, uh, we, we track our own episode right before the guest comes on. And I spent the last episode ranting about a neighbor playing music loudly. So I was in that headspace and now I'm like happy and cheerful and uh, optimistic about the world. So I'm, thank you. I'm
2: <laughs> glad we had, yeah, I'm glad we had that episode as an opportunity <laughs> for you to sort of, uh, I guess, purge all of the, uh, the frustration <laughs> and anger. So, yep. So yeah, it's great to have you, Jen. Uh, how's it going? And uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your story?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm doing fantastic. It's Sunday morning. It's a beautiful day here in the Midwest. I currently live in LA, but I'm hanging out with my family with, for, uh, for the holidays.
2: Nice. So, um, where, where, where are you in the Midwest?
1: I am in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Very cool. Yeah, about uh, 20 degrees, nice and tropical.
2: <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's a balmy 20 degrees. Very much so.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well Jen, you have a million exciting things um that we want to get to, but tell us tell us how you got to where you are today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um I guess the short story is I moved to LA when I was uh, about 20 years ago and you know I, I couldn't find any other jobs, so I got into the hospitality industry. I rose up the ranks. I uh, ended up becoming the GM of a restaurant called Mastro's in Beverly Hills. I love um,
2: Mastro's. That place is awesome. You were the GM of that place? I was. Yeah, back in 2005. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. And that experience was like so, uh, I mean, it just like, it, it changed my life forever. I met um, every captain of industry, every celebrity. It's not like that anymore. It's been bought and sold, uh, I believe, three times. But back then, every table was like a holy cow kind of table. You had presidents, uh, George Bush, uh, Bill Clinton, you had the Brad Pitt's, you had Rupert Murdoch, the Sumner Redstones, and like every little celebrity in between. And so I just met a lot of interesting, colorful people. I over, I sat. People invited me to sit down, share their wine, and I just absorbed. And you know that whole experience of meeting people and listening to people's vernacular and how high-level people interacted, negotiated, build rapport, pitched, and closed kind of helped me create the framework for everything that uh, that helped me build what uh, for myself what I heard from them.
2: And that, wow, wait, that, yeah. that, 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 that's fascinating. I'm curious uh, if you can, pl- yeah, you don't have to say who it was, but I'm, I'm curious if you could share one or two experiences where you noticed somebody using a conversational hack or a rapport building, any tips or tricks or a, a, a nuggets say, hey, this guy was talking to a so and so and the other person did this and that. So they did this. And then I learned about Z or something like that. Do you have any uh, actionable insights or takeaways that you picked up along there?
1: You know, I wish I had something. If I think about it a little bit, I know I have a million. I should have like I should have written them down over the years. But one of the most important things that I've noticed is some of the most influential, powerful, and the wealthiest people—they don't really sell; they attract. And um, what I, you know, what why that kind of made sense was my dad always told me like, if you want to pet a brand new puppy, don't chase after it too hard. You'll scare it and it'll run away. But if you sit back and relax it might come and jump on your lap.
0: That's an interesting note. I mean, there is a balance between like proactively pursuing people and trying to make intros, but I completely agree with what you're saying, which is that if you're kind of secure in yourself and not needing anything, and I guess just not being desperate is the most like uh, casual way of putting it, it is a lot easier to attract those opportunities, I would say.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is high net worth people and celebrities Even though they are who they are, they don't really know who to talk to. They don't know who to really trust because everybody knows them, but they don't really know everybody. So if they go into a party, they're so happy to talk to anyone who can welcome them into the party and take them around to like key people. And that's one of the things that I did. Um, So I've introduced celebrities to high net worth individuals from Asian countries or Middle Eastern countries, and they're always happy to meet each other, and they end up doing business with each other. And the more introductions that you make with high-net-worth people, um, they they kind of like look to you as not the hand that feeds them, but they include you in further conversations. And Mm. they look at you as a peer. They don't look down on you. They don't think that you're on a different level, but you're almost a spigot to like all these incredible introductions. Because these people, whether you're Lady Gaga or you're like a venture capitalist, they kind of have a myopic circle of people they trust. And everybody else kind of wants something from them, even their own families. People want a loan. They want money. They want a job. Very few people can they just kind of relax and bond with when you don't want anything. And once they trust you, that's the opportunity that you can do a lot of business with, with people like that. They just want to trust you.
0: That's a really interesting note. I'm I'm curious. Was there a specific reason you came to LA originally? Yeah, I dropped
1: out of college. Um, you know, I thought I was a total failure. Uh, institutional education was terrible for me, and you know, I was just trying to. I was depressed. I was wondering, you know, what could I do? You know, I'm creative. I like people. I don't. I have no idea how, how the heck to monetize that. There's no case studies. So yeah. I knew I needed to be. I needed to go like either to New York or LA to be somewhere creative. And since I came from Minnesota, I don't want snow anymore. I want to go <laughs> towards the ocean.
0: Exactly. And so I yeah. ended up in LA. And you kind of just – how intentional was ending up as the restaurant GM? Or was that something that just kind of happened?
1: So uh, when I got there, you know, I had a little bit of restaurant experience in Minnesota, but not that much. So I just tried to find whatever I could. When you don't have a resume or connections or you know anything – You'll just take any job. So I got an $8 an hour hosting job at, uh, what, what's that place called? Uh, not Xi'an, Crustation. It's yeah. a, like a high-end Vietnamese fusion. And I wanted uh, the nicest restaurant in Beverly Hills as possible so I could meet people. So yeah. I first got uh, that hourly job at Crustation. Then I worked myself up to a waiter, um, but only because they held that hostage. They said I could only be a waiter as long as I was a full-time daytime host since nobody wanted that job. (laughs) And then from the waiter, they made me like a floor manager within six months. And then when Masters opened up, that was the talk of the town. Everyone said, oh my God, this is the spot. And then I instantly applied there uh, to be a lead host. Um, And then from a host, they made me a manager very quickly. They they found me trustworthy. Uh, They just, they like my work ethic. And I rose up the ranks uh, really quickly there.
0: That's interesting. And and during this time, because I know a lot of what you're doing um, now and, and in the past has been centered around tech, like how big of a component was tech in your life right now? Did you Is this something you just taught yourself a little further down the line, or was this something that was always kind of a part of your life, paying attention to that space?
1: So I was always non-technical, and I'm still non-technical now. I guess I'm more of like um, a communicator, and I bring people together. I like to build community, host events and parties. And so much of a part of tech today is building a community and an ecosystem. If you are going to launch an iPhone, it's more than just an iPhone. It's more than just a product. You're building the ecosystem, which is the app store. Then there's going to be apps. Then that phone is going to sync to the cloud, to your iPad and your computer. And now you have this entire ecosystem and you can't even get out if you wanted to because you're stuck in that ecosystem. So, you know, building the community Uh, building evangelists Mm -hmm. through the community, hyper fans, that's how I think is like the ultimate way to scale a tech company because that's what you want. Uh, We all know that culture eats strategy for breakfast. No better way of building culture than building community. And that's what I learned from Mastro's hosting tables of really big people and then going into experiential events shortly thereafter.
0: That's a really interesting note. We'll get to the Clubhouse app later because I know you are a huge proponent of it and I'm more of a believer now hearing you talk about it because I've only (laughs) been on a couple of days. But that was one conversation that I was a part of uh, yesterday was talking about, people were talking about just general like business, how to succeed, the room was mostly younger, like new Mm -hmm. grads or soon to be new grads kind of figuring it out. And that was something that I was trying to get across was that like, Technical chops is not something you need to succeed in any given industry. Like managing people and finding the right people and putting the right people together is in many ways more important. And, and for the most part will kind of put you in a, in a greater position in terms of hierarchy. Like a lot of times the people that do the technical day-to-day like grunt work don't end up at the at the top of the ladder, right? Whereas the people that are kind of managing all those people do, Right
1: yeah absolutely. Uh, the specialists will always be in need. If you are a data scientist, I mean, you're gonna be the highest paid employee over at Google. if you can if you're a full stack um, developer and you know Python and R and JavaScript and everything else, you'll all you'll be in demand. But you know soon even those jobs are going to be outsourced with AI and deep learning, machine learning and quantum computers and everything. Uh, and yes. right, right now, the visionaries, the people that can put the teams together, uh, people who have revolutionary ideas, who can take like the norm and the status quo and whatever is trending now and then pivot it just a, a little bit, who can see a little bit in the future, that person is invaluable. And then somebody who can like take their ideas and make
0: it actionable. That's interesting. I, I'm going to go a little off topic right now. Do you think that kind of role will one day be outsourced to AI as well in terms of creativity and like finding an entrepreneurial niche?
1: You know, just to go on off-topic a little bit and entertain that, you know, right now it's kind of hard to imagine that, but, you know, if the average human IQ is 100 or what have you, there's going to be an AI someday that has a a 1 million IQ and eventually a 1 billion IQ. What if an AI has a 1 trillion IQ? Then you can synthesize imagination, vision, uh, processing power to eons, and it'll be Biblical and godlike, what that AI can do at some point. So yes,
0: this. You know what? Have you ever heard of an author called uh, named Ken Liu? L I U.
1: I've heard of Ken Liu. I'm not familiar.
0: You should read his last short story collection, "The Hidden Girl" and other stories. It's all about sort of uh, extending different AI things into the future, right? So there's yeah. uploading consciousness and where that would lead if that perfected before everything else. There's um, sort of creative idea generation and where that would lead if it was advanced before everything else it's i think you'll really find that fascinating because it touches on a lot of these topics of like where we can go with a lot of these technologies because they scale um exponentially once once you put it in the hands of machines
1: yeah and we're kind of seeing that a little bit right now uh warner brothers just signed an ai to a 20 album record deal last year
0: (laughs) (laughs) wait tell me about
1: this I, I don't have all the exact details. Um, user uh, listeners can definitely Google that, but um, I believe this AI created such incredible indie pop sounding music that they felt that it could almost be chart topping, and they signed it to a twenty album deal.
2: Wow, that's
0: amazing. Do, so,
2: do you have any so is insights? That like a month? How long does it take for an AI item to come up with twenty albums? Instantly.
1: You know, it's just going to get faster and faster every day uh, because, you know, an AI is just that. It's a code that can teach itself. And it's just going to constantly improve and reiterate, adapt, mutate, and evolve at a much faster pace than we can even imagine. So it's going to scale. If it sounds average now, it'll be fantastic tomorrow. And, yeah, there's AI that can uh, create entire classical symphonies and musical compositions. You know, and people say, yeah, AI can't uh, replicate imagination. But I beg to differ. And if it's bad yeah. imagination now, it'll get amazing tomorrow.
0: I completely agree. I'm scared but also insanely curious to see where this goes. The one that I've been thinking about lately has been the sort of SEO ai machines mm. that could just pump out blog content that's totally targeted and perfect and uh <laughs> you know instead of spending a week making the perfect blog post for organic seo it could do a thousand articles in an hour or something like that and, one. and you could just rank
1: your site immediately you know that's incredible i i just spoke to a gentleman one of the founders of copy ai i don't know if you've yeah. heard of that so vaguely yeah if for you know copywriting is one of the most valuable tools in advertising and social media content marketing. And a lot of times we have writer's block, like how, how in the world can I talk about this damn bagel every single day and make it interesting? And yes, if you type in a few keywords about whatever it is you want to talk about, this AI will spit out hundreds of different variations of great copy to describe your bagel or whatever that subject is. And then you can iterate off of that.
0: That's so funny. I'm gonna send you. I brought up Ken earlier. I'm gonna send you an article he wrote. It was he wrote it in combination with an AI that he built and fed his own writing so (laughs) that he didn't have to do some of these like (laughs) sidekicks. It was like fifty things my AI came up with or something. Yeah, it was was really funny. I'm gonna send you, yeah, I'm gonna send you links to some of his stuff. I think you'll be really fascinated. We had him on the show and he told that story. He built an AI and trained it on his own writing and and named it (laughs) RoboKen. And it's now like his writing companion that he uses when he's when he's stuck <laughs> uh,
1: okay he's instantly the, my, the most interesting person that i need to meet on my list
0: it is he, he's amazing yeah yeah and and i'll send you the link to his episode as well i, I think you would really uh you, you you there's a lot of synergy there in terms of your interest and his interest but i, I need let's, to build
1: a robo gin
2: yes it'll That's make your awkward. life a lot easier i promise <laughs> So uh, so transitioning from, uh, from computers back to people and building relationships with people, I think you have a, a lot of very, very valuable experience uh, over your career doing that. And I'm curious to ask, uh, how do you follow up or what are some of the tips and tricks you picked up along the way for following up with people after you've met them? Is it a text? Is it a call? Does it vary based on who they are and stuff along those lines? And can you give them one or two examples of times that you followed up with people and you found that to be a springboard to an even stronger relationship?
1: Yeah, following up is key to success because nobody does it. You know, living in Los Angeles, you have all these beautiful, outgoing, gregarious people, and they meet everybody every single day because there's million-dollar parties every day and these restaurants with the most fabulous people, and you're always meeting each other. But people are terrible about following up. Uh, You know, at one time, I I helped um, get a meeting with an actor with one of the heads of the top five talent agencies in the world. This is a once-in-a-lifetime meeting. He ended up flaking on the guy because he was <laughs> nervous. And he, he begged me for this uh, invitation for months and months and months. I said, I'm not going to do it. you know. And finally, I did it. And then it, it really burned me. But to the point, following up is so key. And I see a lot of young people who are so good at meeting people, and they don't have a system or process of how to follow up. And I always tell people you need to use a software called CRM, which is customer relationship management, and that's like Salesforce, it's HubSpot. You know, there's uh, I think it's Closed. There's um, are, now there's called community texting, which is like a CRM just for text. And mm-hmm. if you've got thousands of people, you want to put them in different buckets. So each bucket should be like, okay, this is my investor group. This is the celebrities that I met. These are I don't know the women, uh, the beauty bloggers that I know. This is the bagel chefs that I know. These are the hotel hoteliers that I know. And you want to keep people separate. So, you know, if you, if you have different kind of businesses or different initiatives, you don't want to send the same information to all of them. You want to send them to targeted groups. And it's, you know, like in a CRM, you can save birthday parties, you can schedule emails and texts in advance. So if I want to, um, if I want to, you know, text Patrick and Hayden in six months to congratulate them on their one-year anniversary of their podcast, I'm going to write that out right now, and then I'm going to schedule it uh, for the day of their anniversary so I can forget about it. I can also schedule a text in advance. And then on top of that, when they respond, I can have an automated response to that, whatever that response is, based on certain keywords. If they say, hey, I don't remember you, Jin, Uh, can you send me your presentation deck? Based on those keywords, uh, it'll automatically send them another email saying, hey, thanks so much for the presentation deck. Here you go. And then wow. if they respond and say, oh, wow, thanks so much. This looks really interesting. Can I set up a meeting with you? Then based on the keyword meeting, it'll send, up, send an automatic calendar uh, uh, link and they'll go to my calendar link and then pick a day and a time and schedule that. And I haven't had any interaction with them until that confirmed meeting.
0: Jen, I'm getting the sense you live a very intentional life. Is that correct?
1: <laughs> you know, I, probably not as much as I, I'd like to, but because I'm inherently lazy, I want to audit <laughs> it as much as I can, and I want to scale it up as, as quickly as possible and uh, delineate and delegate as much as I can so I can do as little as I can and just focus on what I'm good at, which is strategy and vision and building community.
2: That's a great point. And then how do, you, how do you handle it if you're forming a community or you bring somebody into the, into the fold in terms of uh, communication with you and other people and then they just prove themselves to not be sort of up to the task yet. They might be inexperienced. They might not appreciate the, the weight of the opportunity. How do you go about uh, sort of protecting the community but also mi- like sort of uh, letting people go as well?
1: Um, now, are you talking about my personal community, the, the business community? Or uh, both.
2: I, I, I imagine there's nuanced differences between both. So if you could uh, talk about, I guess, start with the personal and then, uh, and then I guess that'll hopefully feed into uh, any, any sort of advice or perspective you have in the business community as well.
1: So I manage dozens of different masterminds um, and masterminds are something that everybody in the world kind of needs and wants, um, but they don't have the time to host their own. So they just want to get invitations. So, um, you know, if I meet like a high level CEO He doesn't want to meet a bunch of people that's going to pitch to him. He wants to meet other people on his level. So if I meet a high-level CEO, I'm going to create a mastermind and say, hey, we're going to do like a a quick little get-together on Zoom, or we're going to go somewhere, have drinks or dinner, and these are who's going to be there. I've got a founder of this company, this company, this company, and all of them will like make time because they're just like, holy crap. These are people that I might only schedule uh, a meeting once a year. And to see them all in one time, boom, that's great. But if somebody is in that group or if they bring somebody inappropriate who ends up pitching them all on a multi-level marketing campaign, and these are Fortune 500 CEOs, I'll just you know, politely step in and say, hey, by the way, um, you know, uh, we'd love to hear more about this. Do me a favor. Send me all your information and I'm going to send it to these guys. But I want to keep this conversation tonight about big picture stuff. So I'll, I'll quickly try to di- divert them. And I'll do the same at you know, uh, <clears throat> my own conferences, summit series, where people try to hijack a stage. And then in the middle of a question to somebody, they'll start pitching their company for 15 straight minutes. But before that gets out of hand, I'll have to step in politely and then gently try to divert them.
0: So I I find that it's important to be adaptable, I guess, to change slightly depending on who you're hanging out with. It's not always intentional. Like sometimes you're just adapting to the group or the situation and the kind of tone and mannerisms of the people. It sounds like you deal with a lot of different people uh, in terms of culture, interests, um, background, industry, things like that. Like how intentional are you about sort of adapting to the group or is that something that's come instinctually since you've been doing it for so long?
1: Yeah. You know, if, if you're just always one way with a whole bunch of different groups, sometimes you don't resonate as well. So you kind of have to build rapport with them by speaking their language. Um, you know, like this is such an oversimplification, but if I'm talking to like a bunch of Gen Z or like really young millennials, you know, you kind of want to like use their same language. Like, in in like a fluid way you know so Mm -hmm. like if like like i don't know a couple years ago when people were saying oh my god that's lit fam like you would just kind of want to like use language uh that people like to use and that's called mirroring and if certain people use the word epistemology a lot in the way they talk then i would use that word at least once when i respond to them uh so it's just like rapport building i guess so i i don't try to adapt myself but i try to um to lean towards them a little bit and try to speak their language if I can.
0: Do you find that this is taken to another level on the Clubhouse app? And just to give our audience some so we need, Yeah,
2: we need to explain what the Clubhouse <laughs> app is. And then you guys talk for a little bit. I'm just now dipping my toe in, but I, uh, I want to pass... I want to say first and foremost, we got to explain what this is. And I'm going to let, let Jim, you do
0: an, a, a high-level, succinct overview of the Clubhouse app, because I think you're going to be the most qualified of us three.
1: <laughs> no worries. By the way, uh, before I tell the story, I just want to preface this with the fact that I am not an owner of Clubhouse. I don't have equity. I'm not an advisor. I don't even know the owners. I discovered it about a month ago when my friend told me to download it. She said she thinks I would love it. Uh, Mm -hmm. I was very hesitant. Clubhouse, the name sounded like a dating or a hookup app, so very (laughs) trepidatious. But I downloaded Uh it, and I soon discovered that it was just a bunch of different audio drop-in rooms, and uh, it it felt like a mastermind um, 24-7, all day, every day, morning, noon, night, three in the morning people from all over the world talking about a host of different topics. Uh, not all of them are high-level topics. Some people are talking about strippers and cash apps, but mm. other rooms are talking about venture capitalists and a uh, founder's circle, what it's like to do a, a startup, how to raise VC money, how to negotiate valuations, um, in the music industry. Every topic that you could possibly imagine is talked about 24-7, and these rooms are so engaging – Because it's set up like a virtual conference. You've got this virtual stage where people are speaking, then you have the audience where people cannot be heard, they can just listen. And if you virtually raise your hand by clicking on the uh, hand raising button, uh, the speakers can pull you up to the stage. Once you're there, then you can ask a question, and then they can either leave you there or bring you back down. So it's gamified and it kind of um, incentivizes you that when you're up on stage, You want to ask the most succinct question in the most poignant way as possible or give massive value. Once you can do one of those three, all the speakers will want you to stay up there and continue to share in the conversation because you're adding value. So everybody shoots their own shot, drops their best knowledge bombs, and it seems like you can't even get off Clubhouse because everybody who goes up tries to not to outdo each other, but they want to demonstrate their value to that room by creating, by giving the best knowledge in the most succinct time as possible.
0: That's really interesting that you mentioned the competitive aspect as a positive. Like, I I really like that you were honest about that because that's what I felt like too. I felt like, it was less about casual, free-flowing conversation and more about sort of portraying the best or most interesting point possible. Mm-hmm. And originally, that felt a little like off-putting to me, but hearing you describe it honestly, like it it's not that it's off-putting or negative. It's just a different thing than maybe I thought it was going to be going into it.
1: And that dynamic is certainly different with all the different rooms. Uh, when I joined, I think there was about fifty thousand people in the app. Now I want to say there's two hundred fifty thousand. Uh, So there's way more rooms, Uh, you know, the quality of the moderation and the way people moderate are totally different. So the culture in each room is very different. Um, Some rooms are all about selling. Some rooms are all about empathy and listening. Uh, You know, one room is completely silent and they're just meditating together. Um, (laughs) Other rooms are a beautiful free-flowing dialogue with intelligent discourse, incredible debate, people politely listening and giving each other safe space to speak their mind and other places there'll be 18 people talking over each other and it's filled (laughs) with like hate and divisiveness
0: yeah so it's it's fun it's it's actually kind of bringing back the restaurant vibe it feels like you're in a restaurant and you're walking around you're listening to different conversations at different tables but this restaurant is with people from all over the world with from all different backgrounds and types and and speaking styles and Yeah. You know, I do see that as a positive, interesting place to kind of uh, go listen to different perspectives on a whole host of topics.
1: It's interesting. Uh, You know, on IG, Twitter, TikTok, all you care about is followers and engagement and your reach. And some of these people make a lot of money doing that on Mm -hmm. on Clubhouse. It's all about it. No one cares how many followers you have. They just want to if once they see your name and they know what kind of a room you moderate, those are the rooms that people are going to gravitate towards because this person curates such quality conversation and they moderate it at a certain pace and curate incredible information, give great knowledge and value back to the audience. The moderation skills are what's going to be the most valuable in this app.
0: Yeah, it's really rewarding conversational skills as well. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right about moderation skills. Like the rooms that I enjoy being in are the ones with quality moderators who make sure everybody has a chance to speak and kind of keeping people um from going on at extended lengths without really saying anything, right? And you're moderating a room right now, yeah? Uh,
1: well, I, I moderate several rooms a, a week mm. uh, a, on a, a variety of different topics. Um, I do a lot of financial literacy, crypto, Bitcoin, blockchain. Uh, another one is about like, deeper feelings, such as I'll pose a question like, um, if it was impossible to fail, what would you do? And those rooms will attract like, hundreds of people. Um, you know, or if you could ask for one thing, what would it be? Um, hmm. Or tell me a story of you know the greatest advice someone ever told you. So these deep questions attract a lot of people. And then um, another room I have is for uh, metaphysics and people who like to talk about paranormal stuff. These are like campfire stories. That's just for fun. Nice. And then Saturday uh, morning, I have this. I have this new couple who have something called quantum healing. And these are probably the greatest healers that I've ever met in my life. And they've um, changed the lives of 35,000 people. Uh, Their testimonials would take a lifetime to read, if that. And they literally just uh, listen and talk with people one at a time. And it's been transformational.
0: Wow. And So where do you see the future of this going? I I like what you said about maybe... I like that there's not an immediate way to like monetize clout because it inhibits some of the negative things that develop from that where it's really just about boosting follower counts and and that's the most important thing. And the content is all based on that, what works rather than what's interesting, right? It seems to be the opposite on clubhouse right now. What's interesting is more important than what works for follower boosting, right? Um, Do you see that continuing or do you see this going the way of a lot of other apps where it becomes about monetizing your audience?
1: You know, it's hard to say because it's in its early stages. You know, at the end of the day, Andreessen Horowitz won the bidding war to, to invest in Clubhouse at a, uh, for $10 million at a $100 million valuation before they even launched the, the app. Uh, wow. What that indicates is that you know Andreessen wants at least a 10x return on that, that money, so they need a billion-dollar valuation. And if you've got billion-dollar or more valuation... What does that mean? Um, how, do, how do we get to that point? Is it 100 million users? Maybe it's a billion u- users. Once you have a billion, how can you create intimate spaces and these uh, wonderful communities of sharing the knowledge? Could, could you host a room uh, with a million people listening simultaneously and give them all opportunities to speak? That sounds wonderful. But then does that take away from the magic of giving people the, the incentive to try to want to speak, to out-compete each other on getting your attention to be dropped up to stage. So I want to say the future, if, um, if I'm going to guess here, is it's going to continue to be a mastermind app and not a social media app. It's not yeah. going to be about getting a million people into a room. It's about curating smaller rooms. It's kind of like Facebook groups inside of Facebook. You've got billions of people on the app, but these groups are so engaging. Um, I belong to a COVID survivor group on Facebook. It's got 100,000 people. Sounds like way too much. But when somebody has a question or somebody that you love has fallen deeply ill and they need Mm -hmm. answers right away, you're going to crowdsource hundreds, if not thousands of answers and people's real-life perspectives instantaneously uh, within like hours. And that's miraculous. And I think um, Clubhouse has the opportunity to do opportunity to do that with audio and you know it's kind of like twitter and facebook groups but real-time audio with uh, the mastermind effect built in
0: that's interesting so even though it scales and becomes a a bigger and bigger place it still keeps that feeling of intimacy within your micro community in the app
1: totally totally and if they wanted to monetize it um i mean they could charge 10 15 20 20 bucks um you know for anyone to listen as much as you want if you want to host rooms. I'd be happy to pay 50, a hundred bucks a month. I know many other people would do that as well. Every brand should be hosting a room. Um, We had three people from TikTok uh, in our room last night. Uh, We had somebody who led their brand team, somebody from their public figure team, and another person from their partnership team. And they're just like, Clubhouse is absolutely amazing. And we're trying to figure out how we want to figure out our Clubhouse presence. This is TikTok, the greatest, the biggest social media platform in the world, and that's how important they are. We hosted um, the head of Levi's PR and entertainment last week, and this, the head of PR, she said, she spends about twenty percent of her time discussing TikTok, talking about TikTok, or looking at TikTok to figure out what that culture is, how to resonate with that culture, find and identify the future of influencers. And, um, a big part of their strategy is Clubhouse building that community and, uh, and TikTok integrated into that on Clubhouse.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. It will be really fun to see this thing evolve and see where it goes, especially when the corporate aspect comes into it, where people are really trying to get as much value out of something where there isn't that immediate way to get value. You know, you can't buy ads on it. You can't just do promoted posts. You know, it it really is like a personal conversations tied to identity so this will be fun to see where that goes uh thank you for that brilliant description i think you've made all the listeners curious that that
2: was that, that, that was fantastic uh shifting slightly you mentioned uh cryptocurrency i'm curious uh what you sort of see in the landscape and sort of what your take is on uh the sort of the the adoption of the that technology and separating, I guess, blockchain technology from cryptocurrency as a store of value stuff along those lines. If there's any pending regulation or changes in the marketplace that you think are particularly interesting or will have a big impact.
1: Great question. So much to unpack there. You know, we saw Bitcoin uh, hit the stratosphere in 2017, and with that, we had tens of thousands of ICO projects, initial coin offerings, where they were people wanted to dovetail off of the hype that. Uh, crypto and blockchain was building and the majority of these projects were absolute scams and people had raised mm-hmm. tons of money and just ran with that bag and during that time uh, facebook banned crypto and blockchain advertisements every bank and institution called crypto blockchain a scam jp morgan jamie diamond called it a scam uh, and now as of this year you know uh, jp morgan and uh, they have their own crypto coin uh, they already have their own blockchain that they're releasing. Facebook they banned these ads, yet they launched the Facebook Libra Coin, uh, the Libra Blockchain, and you know it's it's about to get launched uh, in this coming year. China banned uh, crypto altogether in that country, yet this year China released their own government crypto on their own blockchain. So at the end of the wow. day, blockchain is you know it's very different than crypto. Blockchain is a foundation. It's a protocol of storing your information in a safe, secure way that is currently unhackable on the Bitcoin blockchain anyway. Um, So at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, do you want your money stored in a central server like Bank of America or Wells Fargo? Or do you want, let's say, your your money on a Bitcoin blockchain, which is unhackable? That Bitcoin blockchain is the power of 500 supercomputers combined times 10,000. So mathematically, cryptographically, it's unhackable. But, you know, every day we see banks getting hacked. So it's a matter of trust and efficiency. And I, I believe people are slowly starting to realize that blockchain is the future in terms of technology and security.
0: It certainly seems that way, right? I read an article about a year and a half ago. Have you ever heard of 20, what's it called? 2600 magazine? Yeah, Hacker, Hacker Quarterly. Yeah, yeah. There was an article in it about, uh, what did they call it? (laughs) BitCon. But this is a while ago. This is before the latest explosion in value where they were talking about how the amount of electricity it takes to su- to sustain the network mm-hmm. is greater than the value of the currency combined, <laughs> like summed, <laughs> sure, sure. which 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 mean it was like, they called it a pyramid scheme, right? Propped up by by global belief in it, right? But that's basically every currency only exists because people believe in it, right? And, and everything about culture and society exists only because people believe in it. The yellow lines on the freeway only work because people believe in them, right? Yep. Aside from that, it's just paint on the ground. Sure. Um, so, do you see this really taking over as a global currency? Does there need to be a unified crypto Will for there it to work? be
2: an Americoin, Fedcoin, yeah, something yeah. like that. You know, um, there's probably
1: <laughs> there's probably going to be a centralized crypto for all the different governments eventually. Uh, you know, there's probably going to be a U.S. coin. There's probably going to be uh, you know a European coin, uh, J- Japan token. Who knows? Um, but uh, will it be unified? I, You know, I definitely see that happening. And um, what was the second part of that question?
0: What was the second part of that question? Do you see it being adopted, I guess, and replacing the current um, existing currency technology? I mean, the existing technology is just physical product trades for a number on a screen, right?
1: It is. Like well, if, I mean, you, if you go to your Wells Fargo, it's just a bunch of ones and zeros. And if you're using you know, your credit card or your debit card, you never even see cash. And the majority of Gen Z millennials, they don't even have cash. Everything is Cash App, Venmo, um, digital. And it seems like we're going to a cashless society anyway. Uh, but I think the question begs, what does that look like in a fully digital uh, currency environment?
0: Yeah, it's true. I lost my wallet on Monday, and it really didn't affect my life. <laughs> like, I could <laughs> still pay for everything. Yeah, yeah It wasn't
2: a problem. That's yeah, and
1: it, Incredible it's, yeah, statement. Uh,
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As soon, as soon as you call the bank and, or I, I, I had a, I lost a credit card one time and, uh, called Chase and they said by the end of this phone call, your Apple wa- your, your Apple wallet on your phone with your Apple pay will be updated with your new live card oh and God. you can use that for payments immediately.
1: Brilliant. Absolute genius. The convenient. Yeah.
2: Do you, do you worry? This is one of my sort of concerns. I, I, I believe that the sort of the nature of blockchain technology and that the confirmation algorithms that are used to sort of solidly record every single transaction across multiple computers, so they're unassailable, unhackable, unquestionable. Um, one of my concerns there is that at some point in the future, there might be a quantum computer that is so powerful that it could sort of unravel the that confirmation algorithm or something else along those lines. I saw recently that there was a a Chinese uh, uh, quantum computing team that i think was able to solve something in 200 seconds that it would take a traditional computer two and a half billion years to solve <laughs> and i'm and i'm curious if you're sort of concerned about the existential threat of quantum computing and and large-scale i guess computational bandwidth uh with its ability to potentially undermine or uh, or damage uh cryptocurrencies
1: yeah that was an interesting case study china did uh, come up with a supercomputer and i don't think it was uh 200 seconds uh, that it could, um, it could outpace a regular computer. I think it could outpace Google's supercomputer by that, that much time, uh, wow. if I'm not mis- mistaken. But a quantum computer uh, should and will be able to break every encryption in the world. And if that's the case and it renders Bitcoin worthless, then it almost uh, renders everything worthless. Then there's zero trust any there's
2: no passwords there's no nothing there's no this nothing. is that would be yeah, absolute this,
1: anarchy
0: this is the i'm happy i mentioned uh Ken lose collection because every story is basically that it's just taking <laughs> a different technology following it in exponential development and eventually it leaves to apocalypse <laughs> 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 and it's and it's not just bitcoin it's just you take any technology and scale it to an infinite degree and at some point it 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 grows exponentially and leads to apocalypse. <laughs> like,
1: totally, totally. So I feel like the first time, you know, like we experience a quantum hack, you know, it, we're going to scale quickly and figure out how to defend against quantum hacks. And there's already, you know, uh, some solutions that people are talking about. But I want to say that there's, if there's AI and quantum computers hacking the system, there could be AI and quantum computing defending the system.
0: Mm, that's an optimistic outlook.
2: And I'm sure and I'm sure that there are simple solutions, too, that you would that you would bring in. I don't know. This might be a uh, yeah, it's, it's tough for me to picture what the defenses are against this al- almost impossible to imagine future. But I imagine that there will be sort of uh, countermeasures, whether it's what we have with two factor authentication or some sort of extrapolation of that that will allow us to sort of uh, tit for tat, go back, uh, back and forth against the hackers and whatever uh, sort of computational hacks and bad things bad actors do.
1: Yeah, I would love it if you guys did a whole episode on what the future of uh, you know encryption and data privacy would look like.
0: Well, here's here's an interesting question. Then, as somebody who's like very intimate with that space, what is the general consensus? Because I feel like, like if I was a climate scientist and I spent all of my days just looking at climate science, I'd probably be incredibly pessimistic about the the outlook and the and the trajectory of uh, Homo sapiens as a species, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what what is the general vibe in people in tech because when you follow these technologies to the nth degree the the the, the opportunity for catastrophic global collapse like seems to present itself down the line pretty pretty readily like yeah. so is there but then like somebody like you who's who's intimate with these spaces you exude optimism which makes me feel a little more secure
1: <laughs> yeah i so you know i just want to preface the fact that i said this early in the beginning in the podcast I'm not a technical co-founder. I'm not a technical person. I'm more of a, like a visionary kind of guy, strategy, and I bring community together. And I like talking about this on, on broad scale topics. but I do like inserting myself in rooms where I'm totally underqualified to be in. So nice. In Clubhouse, I was in a room two days ago with a bunch of uh, award-winning PhDs, AI scientists and uh, like New York Times bestselling authors. And they're talking about uh, weaponized AI and drones. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I asked them a, a specific question that they weren't addressing is, um, you know, t- I think too many people think of weaponized AI as like Terminator, where we'll see like robots like killing humans. And mm-hmm. I see a, the future of AI being microscopic nanobots that can like swarm and instantly create something or make ins- instantly make something disappear. And if you wanted to weaponize that, that could just just completely devour anything with density in the future. And nobody really wanted to talk about that because um, it was too pessimistic. It was too doom and gloom. Uh, and you know, as intelligent as they were, there was some type of hesitation to go down that, that uh, what's it called, black mirror, the kind exactly. of a road. They only wanted to talk about positive things we could do. And then I came back by saying, well, if we don't talk about the negative, how do we divert away from the negative and steer that conversation? Because if we're only talking about the positive and we don't think about the negative, it could wander down the negative without us knowing it.
0: That's frightening that there's a head in the sand approach, but I've I've heard similar things. I know there's a lot of public intellectuals like the Sam Harris's of the world who are absolutely terrified of AI and believe it will lead to the end of society yeah. <laughs> Elon, as we know it. Yeah. Elon right? Musk
2: is a big uh, sort of uh, alarm. I mean, he, he, alarmist. He, he yeah. raises yeah. a lot yeah. of alarm a bells. A Cassandra yeah.
0: of sorts. <laughs> yeah, it, it's 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 interesting that there's that approach. I think. What do you think that is? To me, it's maybe like. Because the good possibilities are so fun and the technology is so exciting and moves so fast that if you're really living in that space, you don't want to think about what this can do in the wrong hands, right? You want to think about how far you can push this just as an intellectual curiosity. Is that it?
1: Yeah. You know, um, there's a lot of alarmists and it's absolutely warranted. You know, AI, um, machine learning, deep learning, um, just quantum computing, nano robotics, all of this is, is gonna change life as we know it. In a decade, we're not even gonna recognize uh, the world we live in. We're not going to, um, I, I, I think I'm a little bit, maybe I'm a little bit uh, too optimistic, but this is just how I visualize it as a creative person. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, We're gonna have godlike power at our fingertips in a very short amount of time. The capitalist society we live in is going to be nearly irrelevant um, you know, when you, when you think about what Andrew Yang says and the job apocalypse, he's 100% right. All jobs are going to be automated. Uh, McDonald's are going to be all kiosks. There will be no such thing as a cashier in any store. Every store will be cashier-less. We're already seeing robots that can make 300 pizzas in an hour, and these are perfect pizzas. We're seeing uh, fully automated uh, restaurants in Seattle where they can make a rice bowl within seconds um, and they're piping hot, and they're built, to, uh, made to perfection. We're seeing robots assist in neurosurgery, in dentistry, in uh, eye surgery. So maybe surgeons will be um, automated at some point. We already have lawyer robots that when you talk to it, it'll ask you a bunch of questions, and it'll spit out a complete report that you can th- then read in court word for word, and you won't even need a robot anymore. Uh, on the most simplest terms, there was a, uh, an AI chatbot that saved $100,000 of traffic tickets from people who got citations. And all it did was ask questions. So, oh, and, and my final example is JP Morgan. They outsourced a million hours of um, accounting, uh, human accounting hours in the last two years to AI. So- This is fascinating. We are on the precipice of absolute dystopia um, of the worst nightmare that we could absolutely imagine, where robots take over and we are absolute slaves. And I don't know what our purpose would be in that world. And we don't know what their intention could be. However, I visualize it as we have the ability to create a utopia. We have the ability to create whatever we want. And I have to think that if an AI has a billion IQ, that it's not going to want to go out and say, oh, I need to kill all earthlings of the world. I think it's got bigger fish to fry. You don't wake up every day and say, I want to kill as many ants as I want. You know, nobody does that. It's just ants are irrelevant to our life. We will be irrelevant to the, to the AI. But I will say this. An AI is built on math. And math is equilibrium at its core. And it's all about balance and congruency. So I want to say that AI will strive for more math, which is equilibrium and balance, and it'll try to solve problems. If the world is imbalanced in one way, it can try to solve <clears throat> those problems using technology. And I feel like an AI would be way too wise to imprison us or to just destroy us. Like if I was a dictator of the world, you know, and I was an AI, am I going to kill all uh, humans and then I'm gonna kill all dolphins and then I'm gonna kill all <laughs> he- monkeys. Like what how does that benefit me? There's exactly. probably like a div- defi- a divine mathematical algorithm and a reason why every species um, You know exists on earth and it's an algorithm that you and I don't understand But an AI probably does and I think it has bigger things on its mind than destroying us all I think it wants to create perfection and harmony uh, on a mathematical level.
2: Very cool, That uh, that's a nice segue because uh, we can go into, uh, I'm curious to learn a little bit more about uh, one of the things you put on your uh, feedback form, which is the securevote.ai. So as we're talking about artificial intelligence and its proliferation within our, within our world, mm-hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about securevote and how you can see that being a, uh, hopefully a positive force for good?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I didn't really flesh that out as well as I wanted to, but I noticed this year Oh my God, we suffered from so much weaponized um, clickbait, sensationalist journalism, weaponized social media, all these people just fighting every day on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram over voting and George Floyd and race relations. And it was just so much hate that led to uh, the November elections uh, with Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And we're still not... You know, Biden won the election, yeah. but we're, we're still being challenged. Nobody, you know, like, we can't, how is it that we live in 2020 and we don't know exactly who won the election? How are this there so many ways that you could potentially, you know, hack uh, voter booths? And, you know, as, as much as you'd have to say, like, oh, that's conspiracy, what have you, It's I mean, it's kind of true. Uh, Democrats and Republicans have been complaining about these antiquated voting booths for, like, the better part of 20 years. Even when George Bush uh, took the election from, uh, what was his name? Al Gore. Al Gore, yeah. So why yeah. why do we have these kind of machines? Why can't we vote from home? If we have high-frequency trading and we can trade trillions of dollars a day, why can't we create a voting system where we can just vote from an app for from our laptop? Why do we have to wait five hours in the rain in New York to go vote? So out of the pure so frustration yeah. on a Saturday night, I said, you know what, I'm going to take um, the framework of how I think a secure uh, biometric voting blockchain app could work for web and for, for mobile device. And then I'm going to like give it away for free to anybody who wants to use it. Um, th- here's the framework. Just take it. Just iterate it. This is a nonprofit website. Just take it and run with it. Um, you know whoever wants to whoever wants support if you want to build community i'm here to support it if i can't champion it maybe somebody else can let's work on it as a community so i created uh, well securevote.com and .net was not available so i called it securevote.ai and that kind of made sense because you know maybe an ai can help secure this blockchain voting protocol in the future anyway
0: Interesting. And maybe you can start a clubhouse room and attract some engineers on it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That is definitely the, that's
0: definitely that's the cool use case. Uh,
1: I've met, um, you know, uh, I was in a room with Andrew Yang this week when he joined clubhouse.
0: Oh, nice. Well, now I'm going to be on the app. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: And there was, there is a public defender, uh, running for that office in, um, for Manhattan, 2021, um, Eliza Orleans, I believe is her name. And she's accepting crypto, uh, for the first time ever. uh, So we are talking currently, and I'm trying to help figure out how to uh, fundraise for her using crypto and crypto art, which kind of like took the world by storm this week, um, and doing Hmm. a unique approach to fundraising through crypto art. Um,
0: Tell me about that.
1: So uh, this past weekend, an artist called Beeple um, used non-fungible tokens on the blockchain, and he wrapped it around his art. And he sold it at an auction and ultimately raised $4 million uh, for the greatest case study for crypto art uh, to date. And then a few days later, this past Wednesday, Deadmau5 dropped his uh, music crypto art on the blockchain. And um, I, I, I didn't read the recap of how much that raised, but I'm sure it was very notable. And what's interesting about the crypto art community is all art is based on provenance which is the history of art and the art ownership. So when you buy a Picasso from Sotheby's or Christie's, you're buying the art, yes, but 40% of that value is a fee that goes to Sotheby's because they had to track the history of who owned it. And that validates that this is a real Picasso and not a forgery. Once you put that provenance on a blockchain and that history, you don't need Sotheby's and Christie's. It's already verifiable on the blockchain. So now the price goes down, but now the value could potentially go up because you know it's not a forgery, it's not a fake, it's one of one, one of 15, and then you can also build in that every time this art is bought and sold, you can build in a royalty rate, 10%, 15%, so you're getting a royalty every time it's bought and sold and as it goes
0: up in value each time as well. Wow, so as an original creator, that's incredibly incentivizing.
1: Absolutely, for creators, for musicians, um, designers, you could do collectible toys, collectible digital cards. I mean, people are, you know, crypto kitties on Ethereum, they're selling crypto kitties mm-hmm. uh, on, on, in this way. And some crypto kitties are going for uh, like a million dollars. So collectibles are definitely, you know, it's important in our world. Like we have collectible baseball cards and beanie babies and I don't know, Cabbage Patch kids way, way back in the day. So, oh, yeah, are important, but then all of a sudden they become insolvent because, you know, you'll go to China and make a million copies and now it's rendered useless.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You won't find any arguments for me as to like value of things like why a beanie baby should be valuable. It's valuable because people think it's valuable. The whole world is governed by collective human thought in in that sense.
1: Totally. Totally. I mean, it's all about the community. You know, Comic-Con is one of the biggest uh, experiential conventions, you know, in the world attracting half a million people a year. And you think, oh, okay, they're talking about comic books. No, back in the day, they're talking about comic books, and it's a bunch like twenty nerds in, in the you know bottom of a basement. But these mm-hmm. comic books are now TV shows and movies and video games. That's a billion dollar empire uh, that this world is. So that was all based on that collectible community, which was again about community and hyper fans.
0: Yeah, and the element of exclusivity. Like, and it became the cool parties. You got to get into the cool Comic Con parties and the, <laughs> the kind of celebs of the world and. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, we're, we're coming up on time a little bit here, and I want to make sure we get to your current project, which is Vest. Did I pronounce that correctly? Vest, yeah. Vest, perfect. Yeah, tell me about that. I'm very fascinated by that. I've seen a few music-related cryptos, and music is probably the industry most in need of a technological makeover at this stage mm-hmm. um, just so there's actually money to be made for creators uh, more than 20 of them I would say. Yeah. Uh, so please, please tell me about that. I'm incredibly curious as to hear about that.
1: Absolutely. It was founded by uh, a gentleman who led the music division of circus, my first tech startup. Uh, cool. Uh, we ended up scaling that up to $250 million valuation. We automated the sales process in the funnel it gave me some time to work on a new project and Steve Stewart, who formerly managed stone temple pilots. I mean, this is like a billion dollars of record and merch and uh, STP yeah, huge band. So he want, he wanted to know why if David Bowie could sell Bowie bonds, like in the eighties or nineties, hundred thousand dollar bonds in the publishing of his music. And as the music went up in value, the, the value of the bond would go up. Why couldn't you do that on a smaller scale? Like the Robin hood app for retail investors. So built it, Uh, and then when I came in, I said, "Why don't we build this on the blockchain and then uh, put it on, you know, secure it on the blockchain and then do the micro uh, transactions uh, with smart contracts?" And that's when Vest was born. And Vest is the world's first blockchain music royalty app, which allows people to download the app and they can buy any song from any artist and earn a royalty dividend along with that artist or that label. So you're allowing fans to kind of invest in their favorite music, and they participate on the earnings should that music go up in value. And what's interesting about that is, although some artists like Beyonce or Kanye, who we've sold out songs for, they may not need the money. However, um, if you ask them how happy they are with their social engagement, they're not happy at all. Uh, Beyonce's got 150 million followers on IG, but her engagement is less than 1%. So if a million fans buy $5 worth of republishing, they're all going to talk about that project more as a a micro-influencer, and if they all share Mm -hmm. it, 1 million streams could turn into 20 or 30 million streams, and that money can change. So you're basically crowdsourcing your own record album for any artist, and especially the indie artists who need this the most. This is fascinating, and
0: is this open to the public right now? Can I sign up?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You can download the app. Um, we launched it a year and a half ago, I'm sorry, two years ago, and we sold a million dollars in song rights last year. Uh, we signed BMG, the third largest music publisher in the world, to be our main yeah. publishing partner. So they've given us songs from Ariana Grande, The Weeknd, uh, The Aerosmith, Tone Loke, The Turtles, Happy Together, um, and prior to that, we sold out of songs from again Beyonce, Jay Z, Kanye, Drake, uh, some of the bigger names. We did that to get attention and onboard users. Uh, but our main passion is uh, getting help to independent artists, so they can just mm. focus on making music and not driving Uber all day. Yeah. They could raise three, four, five thousand dollars and give away some of their publishing. Uh, I mean, just like you would to a publishing label, and then all that money that they raise, they keep. And now they can use that to make more music, go on tour, or create merch.
0: You know, I feel like I'm going to make a lot of money on this app. I think one of my greatest skills is recognizing what song is going to blow up next. (laughs) (laughs) You
1: know, so many people think that, but it's a lot harder than you think, (laughs) because uh, I think uh, 35,000 songs are uploaded to Spotify every single day. And there is just a lot of talent out there. And, you know, not every day can you find the next Billie Eilish or Post Malone. So... You, know,
0: I, I you watch me, Jim. You watch. <laughs> you know
1: what? I, can't wa- I can't wait to watch the journey. As well. Watch it take over and end up buying us out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there, was a, there was a website that came out like maybe 15 years. I think I, it was when I was in high school. This website came out. It was just for fun. It never really went anywhere. But it was, it was a similar thing, just low tech and not real money. But you would start with like a thousand coins and you would invest in bands and as they grew in popularity, your investment would grow. And like me and my brother just killed it on the app. <laughs> like, oh, no. You know what? I think I know what you're talking about, but it was more of a
1: game. It wasn't like... It was a game. Yeah, there was no money involved. Right. I've seen... I, I, I saw like a celebrity stock market, things like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've always wanted this to exist in music and now I can do it. And so what, what am, am I buying the publishing? I'm not buying the songwriting credit, right?
1: You're buying the actual... Um, uh, the the publishing rights. Well, there's many different kinds of rights. There's masters. There's public. Yeah. There's songwriters. the The majority of the rights that we're selling are songwriters' rights. Um, oh wow! And basically, what we're doing is we're verifying ownership of that. Um, you know, through royalty statements, and you're, they're collecting from uh, companies like ASCAP, CSAC, BMI. These are called mm-hmm. PROs, performance rights organizations. And once we verify the ownership. And then we send them a letter of direction saying, "Hey, uh, Patrick made this song with Beyonce. Um, he just he just sold us um, all of his rights, or he he's transferring his rights. Then they divert a portion of those rights to Vest, and then every time we get a payment, uh, our blockchain smart track uh, contracts take those, and then we distribute the micro to you know potentially a million of your fans who bought you know." portions of it
0: interesting and how do you determine the like summed value i guess of the auction so i have 50 percent of the song i put it up for auction do i say like i'm selling a hundred percent of it and one percent is five dollars or something or how does that auction process work? such
1: a great question we still don't know um you know we kind of have like a team that determines the value we look at your past royalty statements uh we look at what what you have coming up are you going on tour are you accelerating on IG or TikTok? Uh, because if your move, your rate of growth can dictate like future earnings. So we kind of take all of that into account, but we don't dictate the price. You do. Okay. At the end of the day, we don't want you to sell a song for a billion dollar valuation, knowing that it won't sell out, or people are just gonna, you know, they're gonna like spend money on something that they'll never get a timely timely return on. So we advise you. Uh, we're trying to be. Um, a, a two-sided marketplace like craigslist or ebay all we do is verify ownership that we can collect and then we want to automate that process
0: okay so it's not like an ipo in the sense that i determine the quantity of shares and the market determines the value i determine the value and the share count and then people can buy in at that predetermined price That's is correct, that correct correct Okay. Got you. I really like this. I'm going to sign up and I, I'm hoping to be the top earner by, by the next time we talk.
1: <laughs> you know, you got to keep me posted. I can't wait to, I, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on it.
0: Hell yeah. Well, before we close, I want to get to something you put on your form. You wrote about uh, systemic change, specifically the story of the butterfly and the tsunami. And I wanted to hear that story.
1: So, um, you know, the, the, the butterfly and the tsunami is, is basically like the, the quantum effect of, um, you know, like fractal um, acts that can happen. So, you know, I think it was an old Japanese proverb that says the way a butterfly flaps its wings in the west can create uh, a tsunami in the east. And mm. it, like the smallest acts can create a ripple effect. It can it can compound. Um, you know, if you if you take a penny and you double it every single day, you know how fast can that grow? And it's extraordinarily fast. How how powerful the compound effect of interest can have. But Mm -hmm. compound effect of interest can also happen in humanity. And it's all about uh, paying it forward, it's education, it's about sharing resources, helping each other, uh, mentoring each other, and a giving community. We live in a capitalist community, and I think the next iteration of our society will be about sharing, bartering, teaching, and inspiring. And, you know, I'm, you know, back to Clubhouse, not to promote that, but <laughs> Clubhouse has a great culture of that. It's like this, this small little world where everyone is sharing, everyone is learning and extracting. Mm. And the average listen time, I have to say, is possibly four or five hours. Every day, people are like, oh my God, I've been on here six, seven, 10, 12 hours. And they have notebooks filled with knowledge and takeaways And, you know, I'd like to see a world where we can kind of adopt those principles. And it's kind of the same ones that we're seeing on TikTok. TikTok is about inclusion. It's about loving yourself, embracing your flaws. And it's about sharing and teaching. And, you know, the brands don't really understand TikTok because it's not just a social media platform. It's a vibe. When Mm -hmm. I try to explain Clubhouse, it's a vibe also. Unlike IG, where it's all about fake it till you make it, Facebook, yeah. where it's all about division and about you know like just people yelling at each other, Twitter, yeah. it's about like trolling and bots, you know, TikTok and Clubhouse, uh, the vibe is totally different, and it's led by like this Gen Z, um, this Gen Z generation that is kind of wants to divert away from what they're seeing and the flaws of uh, of the other social media platforms and hopefully we're
2: seeing an evolution.
0: Wow. Well, I think that was a hopeful and optimistic note, uh, which is perfectly fitting with the rest of this conversation <laughs> and a great way to close.
2: Yeah. Where, where, where can people get in touch if they want to find out more? Uh, can you promote any of your uh, any of your ways that people can follow you? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, you can go to my IG. It's at J-I-N-W-O-O-Y-U. Drop me a DM. I uh, love chatting with new people, making friends or find me on uh, clubhouse my clubhouse name is at wolf x lion and Hell yeah. uh, my my company is called vest uh v-e-z-t dot c-o
0: awesome well this has been brilliant thank you so much for your time jen
1: patrick hayden a privilege and an honor to speak with you thanks for having me
0: awesome awesome we'll have to do it again this has been another episode of deus life an aspirational podcast and we'll see you all next time peace